teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back, everybody, to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, an exactly monthly podcast in which I get people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. And this month, I am joined, as always, by nobody. Uh, We had some technical difficulties and yada, yada, yada. It's a solo show in terms of uh, co-hosts. But I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Brian Roth. He is an ichthyologist. And the reason I'm excited is I started my career as an ichthyologist back at the University of Georgia way back in uh, longer ago than I care to admit, 2001. I started my master's degree there. And so I haven't gotten to nerd out on fish much lately, so I'm excited to do that here. He's going to talk to us about the fishy studies and what we can learn from them all about the Great Lakes. So since I don't have anybody to do inane banter with or make Canada jokes or what have you, let's just go straight to the interview after this theme. Okay, and our guest today is Dr. Brian Roth. He's an associate professor at uh, in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife at Michigan State. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for coming. I'm really excited to learn about the fish of the, the Great Lakes and, and what we can learn from them about the Great Lakes in general. But let's start big picture first with your background. I think you're from Seattle. Is that right? So how'd you end up uh, in the Great Lakes area? Yeah, well, it's kind of a long journey. Uh, I was born and raised in Seattle. Went to University of Washington for my undergrad and then went, uh, spent some time in Georgia as a, after my undergraduate, spent some time in Wisconsin doing my master's and PhD and uh, did my postdoc down at LSU and then came up to Michigan. I missed the Midwest. Missed the Midwest. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, now you're here. I, <laughs> in the summers at LSU, you miss the Midwest and in the winters, you probably miss Georgia. <laughs> yeah. So, so you study fish, right? What is it about fish that you study? Because that can be a whole variety of things, right? What do you what do you look at when you're talking about fish? Absolutely. So, I'm primarily a fish ecologist. So, I study the interrelations between fish and the environment and the effect of the environment on fish. So, I really like to look at how they interact with their environment, and in particular, I really like predatory fishes. So, I like those top predators that are feeding on smaller fishes or whatever else. Yeah. So in the Great Lakes, what are we talking about there? Is that like the salmon and the trout? I don't, you know, what are the big predators in the Great Lakes? Yeah. Salmon and trout are the ones that most people think of, but you also can consider things like walleye uh, as a top predator. And I haven't yet gotten into things like smallmouth bass and northern pike, but someday maybe. So, uh, so you're looking at native and non-natives there, right? Cause there are all the salmon, help me understand salmon in the Great Lakes and then we'll work our way around. Are all of those introduced or is that just in Lake Michigan? What's the, what's the deal with those? Yeah. So all the salmon that you traditionally call salmon are introduced. Um, so that includes Chinook salmon, coho salmon, pink salmon, as well as Atlantic salmon in places like Lake Michigan and Huron. Um, However, there are native trout species that includes the lake trout and brook trout, which are found in more inland waters. But there is uh, kind of a lake going strain up in Lake Superior called the coaster brook trout. Coaster. Okay. Uh, And so those are, so trout and salmon, those are same family, but different genuses or genera. 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 Hey, it's coming back. Uh, is, Is that right? That that is correct. So all the Pacific salmon, and that includes actually rainbow trout. Um, they belong to a genus called. Uh, it's kind of a mouthful. It's called Oncorhynchus, 
and they yeah and they all belong to a group of fish whose native range is the pacific coast so some of them range just you know mostly around from northern california over to kamchatka peninsula in russia okay and did they introduce those uh, just as a fishery or do you know why why was it the dnrs or who, who did those yeah a guy named howard tanner uh well more than 50 years ago now um, found, uh, he arrived at a Great Lakes that um, were, were pretty impaired. So lake trout had really declined due to invasions of sea lamprey, as well as overfishing. And there really wasn't anything to attract uh, recreational anglers to the Great Lakes. In addition, at the time, um, an invasive species called alewife had gone amok okay. um, in the Great Lakes and were dying in mass and washing up on beaches and things like that. So nowadays we go to South Haven or, you know, Muskegon and the beaches are beautiful and sandy, but you can imagine a time when those were covered, literally covered in dead fish. Oh my. So that would have been a good time to buy some property. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but, but uh, yeah. And so for one, there was no recreational opportunities or relatively few. And two, there is this invasive fish that was pretty much the perfect size for uh, Pacific salmon. So Howard Tanner dumped Pacific salmon, uh, notably coho at first and then Chinook later, into the Great Lakes. And what do you know, they came back and people started catching them and a recreational fishery was born. And as a really positive side effect, uh, they also controlled alewife. I see. So we had native I think I got this. Let me get, let me make sure I got this story right. So we had a native lake trout population in the Great Lakes, mm-hmm. and then the sea lamprey came in, uh, maybe introduced via ships or something. Um, and uh, sea lamprey, which are these big snake-like things, if you haven't seen them, I saw one on a salmon once at uh, at Lake Superior State, and they're uh, on their webcam. Uh, there was mm-hmm. like a, a sea, and so there's a sea lamprey, and they would they would uh, latch onto the trout, and um, this over time, like the trout population started crashing. And then we also had these alewives that got here somehow. And so without uh, trout or whatever to eat the alewives, the alewives just started going nuts, right? That's Muck, right. That's mucking right. up beaches and whatever. And so they brought in the sand. This is like the old lady who swallowed the fly to a certain extent, though, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But, but I guess yeah. so, now, so now we have a pretty good salmon fishery uh, for good or bad, I guess. I mean, and some nice clean beaches. I guess it's kind of trade-off uh, as to whether or not that's good, I suppose. Oh, no, it it definitely has been overall very, very positive. Um, The current recreational fishery in the state of Michigan, as well as in other states around the Great Lakes, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, In addition, um, you know, those salmon really put a hurt on the alewife population. So we don't have those nasty die-offs that would wash up on beaches. And so... Overall, it's been a real boon. Um, the kind of side, uh, the side effect of that is that now there's an industry built around these recreational fishes that are non-native, right? Sure. And so there are lots of you go to South Haven or Grand Haven or Ludington, and there are lots and lots of charter boats that will go out for salmon, right? Um, and so now those fisheries are pretty much dependent on Pacific salmon. And so, you know, we're kind of in, in some ways stuck, but it, it is re- overall very beneficial in that, um, you know, the, 
there's only emerging fisheries for our native species sure. and there's more established fisheries are, are for non-native species. Okay. But you also study other predators. So does like the, all these salmon, this thriving salmon fishery, does it interfere with like the walleye and other things or are they just in totally different areas? Yeah, they they tend to be in different areas. Um, so most of the salmon fisheries occur in two locations. So one is offshore so you have to get in a relatively big boat or risk your life in a smaller one to get out to the main basin of Lake Michigan in particular for the Pacific salmon, but also Lake Huron, Lake Ontario, et cetera. Um, and whereas for walleye, they tend to inhabit warmer, shallower waters uh, for the most part. And so they're more prevalent in places like Green Bay, Saginaw Bay, Western Lake Erie. And so, you know, occasionally there is some overlap, but for the most part, they're, they're pretty separate. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And so uh, you study these predators and how they interact with their different prey organisms and things like that. Well, what is the, I guess, what is the importance of studying those interactions? I mean, it's cool. Predators are cool. I love big fish, right? Um, yeah. But, but is there, what, what can we learn from that that can kind of teach us about the Great Lakes, I suppose? Yeah, a lot, really. So we've entered into kind of a new time in the Great Lakes, uh, believe it or not. So we had additional invasions after the ones that you mentioned, sea lamprey, alewife. We've had a number of further invasions, and they've continued to change the Great Lakes. And two of those that have had really dramatic effects are zebra mussels and quagga mussels, the dry scented mussels, as well as round goby. Okay. <clears throat> and, and round goby, um, in particular, became really abundant and um, zebra, the dry scented mussels really changed the productivity of the Great Lakes. So what I mean by that is in places that used to be green are now clear. And so <clears throat> there's this change in the Great Lakes, uh, both to the forage base as well as the water clarity that had kind of, in some cases, unknown effects, but in others, such as in Lake Huron, alewife completely disappeared. Because of the uh, water clarity? We don't necessarily know. There's a, there's a lot of different hypotheses as to why alewife collapsed in Lake Huron. There, there's still a few around, but it's nowhere near what it used to be, and it's nowhere near even what Lake Michigan is. And so there's a number of different hypotheses. One of the dominant ones is that dry scented mussels reduce productivity a lot, and there was not enough food. And one of the consequences of that is that Chinook salmon, which depend on alewife, they also collapsed. So there are very, very few Chinook salmon in Lake Huron anymore, whereas before there is a thriving fishery. And so one of the things that, you know, my work informs is, A, how, how do these predatory fishes succeed or not uh, in a time where there's no alewife? right? Or very few alewife. How do they make a living? And uh, what we're thinking is that Lake Michigan has also suffered kind of a fairly steep decline in alewife abundances. Um, it's not to the level of Lake Huron yet, but there's concern that Lake Michigan could be headed the same direction as Lake Huron. And so learning about what's happening in both Lake Huron and Lake Michigan, they kind of inform each other, right? So studying Lake Huron tells us how predators uh, survive in, in, in a lake without alewife. We don't know necessarily what that's like anymore. Huh. It's been a, too long since, since that occurred. So they inform each other. And, and in addition, they understanding what those predators are consuming 
helps us to guide stocking decisions. So Pacific salmon in particular, their populations are heavily supported by management agencies stocking, right? In addition, lake trout are also heavily stocked. However, you could imagine a situation where if we put as many fish as we possibly could, as many Chinook salmon, as many lake trout as we possibly could into a lake, they'd run out of food. Okay. Um, And so we don't want to do that. So we need to try to focus on balancing predator and prey. And my study directly informs that balance calculation. And so what goes into trying to understand that calculation? Do you just sort of throw a bunch of fish out there? You stock a bunch of fish and then do like population counts and kind of treat it like an experiment? Or what is the deal there? Um, It's not necessary. Well, yes and no. So it's adaptive management, right? So um, there are all sorts of factors that we can't control that can affect the fish populations. Weather is one. Climate is another. Um, uh, Harvest, recreational harvest, tribal harvest, all those kind of go into calculations. Sure. As well as whether or not, you know, a population or a species is able to produce young. Right. So that's that's those are some of the bigger calculations that go in. So in we can have some pretty good estimates of how many fish are actually in the lake, how many predator species or or, uh, individuals of of various predator species are in the lake. But there's always uncertainty around that, right? Like we can't take every single individual out of the lake. Um, So they're estimates, right? And so what management agencies try to do is enter those estimates into, into computer models and, and a big kind of linkage between those predator and prey populations is what the predators are eating, right? Because they are going to put, uh, they're the primary source of mortality for those prey fish. And so that's where my study in particular, the predator diet study comes into play. I see. So, so you look at what they're eating and then you use that to uh, infer information about the, how the populations interact with each other. So how do you figure out what they're eating? Yeah, so it's kind of gross, but uh, (laughs) so we go to tournaments as well as we work with a number of partners. So we work with the United States Geological Survey, United States Fish and and Wildlife Service, and various DNRs as well as Sea Grant um, to try to get recreational anglers to donate the stomachs of their catch Mm. for the day. Um, or we take the stomachs out of the fish that people bring back to the dock. So uh, us, MSU, as well as our partners, go to tournaments, fishing tournaments, and ask people to donate stomachs or take them out ourselves. We bring them back to the lab um, and open them up and see what's inside. And so there are times where people do not like like walking by my lab because it just... (laughs) Smells like dead fish. Yeah. <laughs> it just smells like dead fish. Well, oh, it smells geez. like science to me, to be honest with it you. It smells <laughs> like science. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, yeah, I remember growing up, now that I think about it, I used to, I grew up in, in New Orleans, and I would go fishing with my father a lot. When we mm-hmm. catch trout, sea trout there, which are not yep. the same as, as what we're talking about here. Uh, but one thing we were cleaning them is he would always cut open uh, and show me, like, the shrimp that we had caught them on and maybe some other. You could see crabs in there sometimes or, or whatever. Last episode, which everybody should go check out at uh, teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 12. 
we interviewed an entomologist, uh, Jan Sibirowski is his name. And so he talked about like identifying all these little things. So when you get little stuff in there, you know, if you get like an alewife, you can identify an alewife pretty quickly in the gut of a, a fish, I would think. But how do you do the smaller stuff? Is it microscope work or? Yeah. So there's a lot of microscope work. And as you, you might not think about this, but yeah, you think about a Chinook salmon eating an alewife and what you expect is to open up the Chinook salmon and, oh, here's a perfectly preserved alewife. But as you know, things, I mean, the whole purpose of the stomach <laughs> is to turn those perfectly preserved things into not so preserved things, right? So oftentimes we'll get just like bones, um, maybe a tail. A tail. Yeah. <laughs> tail wife. Uh, yeah, exactly. It, it, and it, that's why, you know, it smells like science in my lab, right? But yeah, we go down. Um, we also look at bugs. So rainbow trout uh, tend to eat a lot of bugs. Okay. A lot of bugs. Um, and so we'll go down to order, um, which is not super far if you're an entomologist. Right. But so what is it? Fish- it's kingdom, phylum, uh, class, order, then family, genus, and species, right? And I'm sure now, that's what I learned like seventh grade. I assume now it's changed. But is that roughly a... Yeah, yeah that's roughly it. So, you know, we want to know if it's a mayfly. Right. Okay. Or dragonfly or a beetle, yep. you know, something along those lines. But after that, it you know, it we don't go much too much for further. Yeah. yeah for, for, for bugs, for fish, we go down to species. So one thing you talked about is something is an adaptive management. Uh, uh, what you're doing is part of an adaptive management program. Can you tell me a little bit about what what is adaptive management? I know what it is like in theory because I learned about it in, you know, during my master's and Ph.D. program, but I haven't really studied how it. Uh, works in practice. So the idea is that you're treating fisheries management kind of like an experiment. Is experiment. that right? That is correct. Yes. So we, you do an experiment where you have a management action that you implement, and then you study the system. You obtain information from that experiment. Uh, so you have to have kind of critical indicators of what you're looking for, and then you adjust. Um, and so it's adaptive, right? So you have to be willing to make some mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think our management agencies around the Great Lakes have been doing an unbelievable job to deal with the circumstances of a, of a highly dynamic system, the Great sure. Lakes. We, we oftentimes look out you know, across the lake and think that they're fairly static, but they, things are always changing there. And so you know, managers have the really tough job of trying to make the public happy, but also making sure that those lakes sustain their ecosystem function uh, for generations. Uh, We don't want those to go away. We don't want to ruin the Great Lakes, right? We want to keep them as pristine and as healthy as possible. So it's a really tough job. And I think that they're doing an unbelievable job. And you say so dynamic because, I mean, there's so many people living in the area and so much sort of anthropogenic change with all these invasive species interacting with each other and and things like that. It's just a lot changing at once. Um, Yeah. Interesting. And so when you say ecosystem function, you just mean like uh, the productivity of the ecosystem, uh, you know, keeping things working well. Is that kind of what you're getting at there? Uh, yeah. So ecosystem function it can be defined in a lot of different ways, right? So one of the things that we're particularly focused on here at MSU is not just the ecosystem for ecosystem's sake, right? Like we, we are really interested in how people interact with ecosystems, right? And people are the things that we focus on. So even though I study fish guts, right? Um, 
this has to do with management of the fishery, which deals with people. Um, and so one of the thing, one function of the Great Lakes, one ecosystem function is provision of clean water. Sure. Right? So there are millions of people around the Great Lakes whose drinking water comes from the Great Lakes. <laughs> uh, we And we can see when that breaks down, like in Toledo a few years ago, uh, when Lake Erie had a huge algae bloom, toxins got into their drinking water. Um, and so that is one really important ecosystem function. And another one um, is fisheries. Uh, and so there are lots and lots of people that either rely on fisheries for their livelihood. Um, and this is not just charter boat captains, right? Like there are lots of uh, indigenous groups that rely on those fish for sustenance. Um, and so those ecosystem functions are, are really important. Huh. This is something I've been thinking about a lot, a lot lately is, is like, what I really admire about you is like, you, you know, there is what you nerd out on. Like you nerd out on fish guts. Well, maybe I don't admire that about you, but I'm impressed. Maybe that's a better way to put it. But, but then you're taking it. So, so something I'm learning through this podcast, frankly, is that, you know, you find people who nerd out on something, but then they, they it serves this much broader purpose. Right. And, and so here, like you're studying the smell of science and uh, doing so to help with, you know, large human scale problems, whether it's, you know, people recreating and consuming fish or recreating on with or consuming fish or whether it's water quality issues and, and things like that. And so so here you are doing the thing that really or a thing that really interests you in, in studying fish guts, but but being part of that bigger picture. And I think I've been really impressed by people who do that. And I think that's uh, really interesting. Well, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I, it's certainly part of my DNA. You know, that's something that I really care about is, yes, I love fish, right? Like, that's why I got into this field. Um, but I also understand that, you know, I am a recreational angler. I want my kids to be a recreational anglers. And in order for them to get excited about, there has to be fish. <laughs> uh, there has to be fish for them to catch. Um, and so I am very much concerned about the sustainability of fish, not just for fish sake, but for, for human use, quite frankly. That makes sense. So let's talk more about some of these other invasive species that we've looked at. Well, actually, I have a question. Let me go back. So you're talking about how much cleaner the water is now. And this is something I've heard somebody mention to me before. So I, I want to get your opinion on this. Is the water in Lake Michigan, maybe beyond, I just know about Lake Michigan, is it too clean now? It could be. Uh, I think that's yet to be determined, okay. quite frankly. Um, yeah, productivity, so the amount of algae produced by uh, phytoplankton in the Great Lakes, this is not my area of expertise, but, um, sure. you know, has been reducing. And not only that, it's it's been going down. But in addition, um, when the time of year that we see algae blooms has also been changing. Okay. And that has some concerning effects for things that I care about, young fish, right? So uh, historically, there is a large bloom of phytoplankton called diatoms in spring. And that has been uh, going down and down and down over the years, such that now um, it's more in the fall, okay. which, is, which is really odd. But the thing is, that early diatom bloom fed zooplankton which in turn fed young fish. And so if those diatom blooms are shifting in time and, right. and intensity, it could affect our fisheries. Okay, that makes sense. 
Okay, now let's jump into some of the other invasives briefly. Um, uh, so you also do some work with all the different, uh, hold on, let me pronounce it the way that I'm supposed to up here. Uh, crayfish. You do work with the different crayfish, uh, which I think are relatives of crawfish. But so tell me about the, the crayfish that you work on. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm kind of a weird scientist and I, I like both fish and crayfish. Um, as a kid, I used to go down to the lake and if I wasn't fishing, I was hunting for crayfish, or as I call them over in Seattle, crawdads. Crawdads, right? so. yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so one of the non-native species, uh, Michigan has currently two non-native species of crayfish. One is the rusty crayfish, which many people have heard about. They're kind of uh, brownish burgundy species with a big kind of rust colored spot on their side. And they're in a lot of different places in Michigan. So many people have seen or heard of those. However, there's a new one that we found in the state that we confirmed in the state for the first time in 2017. It's called the red swamp crayfish. And that is in New Orleans, when you would have crawfish boils, oh, that's the one, that's what you would eat. That's the yeah, one. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, as you know, in Louisiana, you can go to a gas station or whatever and buy a 50-pound sack of crawfish. Yeah. As it turns out, you can have those shipped oh, pretty boy. much anywhere in the United States. Yeah. At least you used to be able to. <laughs> um, it's now prohibited in several states because they've been getting invasions of these things. Now, it's not a species that we would typically think of as being capable of surviving in Michigan. And for many years, I was like, they'll never get here because it's too cold. Right. But as it turns out, um, they're invasive almost all over the world, including in cold water locations or cold weather locations. Mm. So northern Germany, Poland, uh, they're in Seattle, they're in Japan, they're in China. They're, I mean, they've gone all over the world. And sure enough, in 2017, they showed up here in two different locations, one in southwest Michigan and another and several locations in southeast Michigan. And we think that this is almost entirely due to people purchasing sacks of crawfish, having a boil and a couple of them get set free or get loose or whatever the case may be. No, no, be. it's the kids. And your kids put it. We know exactly what it is, right? It's the little <laughs> kids. You have crawfish ra or crayfish races and yeah. uh, or you put them in the pond. I mean, that's, you know, it's unfortunate, but I, it's, yeah, the, the vector to me seems pretty obvious. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exotic species aren't necessarily invasive, but um, they can't right. be. And so invasive means it like goes out and it has, it fills an ecological niche that isn't otherwise filled or it takes over for something and forces out the native species, right? Close enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so these, they, they do that or they take over for native crayfish or, or something yeah. else? Yeah. So that's something that we're studying right now. We, we don't know, okay. uh, to be honest with you. And like I said, we first found this thing in July of 2017. And uh, my research group has worked very closely with the Michigan DNR on this. Um, and we, for the first year and a half, we're kind of in panic mode, um, where we were just trying to figure out where these things were. Um, and so we did a lot of crayfish trapping and the, the ecosystems that we were studying are not the kinds that ecologists traditionally look at. So, you know, we had done a survey of 900 locations around the state looking for these things, but we focused on small streams you know, in pretty places. <laughs> uh, and as it turns out, these things like 
kind of yucky places. So retention ponds, oh, hotels, golf course ponds, uh, occasionally a lake. Um, there is one natural lake that is invaded, um, but for the most part, it's these kind of really, really small water bodies um, that are in places that ecologists tend not to go. So, so you know, we are really in kind of fact-finding and distribution-finding mode, and, but we're moving forward. And one of the things that we've noticed is that these things are living in places where you don't necessarily think that there are crayfish, but there are. So there are a couple native species that will live in some of these ponds, particularly if they're connected to a stream. And um, one of the things that we've been trying to document is, you know, are the native species coming back when we are removing these red swamp crayfish? And we'll find out. We don't know. Um, but certainly we're currently taking the precautionary approach by just every red swamp that we catch, we are killing and taking them out at the moment. Interesting. Well, I think we, you know, at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, uh, we've recently started with with you and some other people, the uh, Invasive Crayfish Collaborative. And uh, I think we're going to do like a whole episode on this issue at some point. And so we would love to have you back, uh, you know, maybe this fall, maybe the coming spring or something like that to talk about this in detail, because I think it's a important to be really interesting, both in terms of the questions you're talking about, like, what do we know about their invasion? There's a lot of sort of ecologically interesting questions. And then the broader issues, too, because invasive species are so uh, such an important human dimensions type question. And as someone who studies human dimensions, I find it to be fascinating. Um, yes. Yeah. Just a little advice to people. They'll shrimp are better. Like, I, you know, I grew up in Louisiana whole life. The crayfish are, it's, or crawfish are fun. You get your boil, <laughs> you know, you suck the heads. They're spicy and that's fun. But, but honestly, shrimp are better. So just go with the shrimp. And when you're in Louisiana, have a crawfish or two. You know, as a, as a scientist, I consider eating crayfish to be um, energetically deficient process. And so what you have to do is make up for those calories that you're burning, peeling those things by drinking lots and lots of beer. Yep. Yeah. It's the, it's really just a, a beer. <laughs> it's a beer and corn delivery mechanism. That's it. That's it. They're, they're salty. You need to quench yeah. your thirst. I agree. Yeah. I completely agree. <laughs> well, this is really interesting, Brian. I thank you so much, but that's actually not why we brought you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes. We brought you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes to ask you these two questions. And this one is kind of relevant. We're shifting now. If you could choose a, to have a great donut for uh, breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, but only one, which would you choose? A sandwich, always. As, as long as it's like corned beef with mustard purchased from somewhere in Chicago. There we go. Okay, so this is my next question. Uh, and then I have something I want to throw out there. Uh, but so where, so, so in, don't go to get a great sandwich in East Lansing. Go to Chicago, where I go plenty, and get a corned beef and mustard sandwich. Just corned beef. It'll be about six or seven inches high. Oh, my. And just, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, so good. <laughs> so here's, yeah, you, we didn't get to talk about gobies today, but you work with gobies. So I want to throw my idea. This is my business idea if Seagrant doesn't work out. And that's, you know, they have hot dog stands like in Chicago or in New Orleans, like carts. They had, um, they had a oh, lucky no. dog was the big one, right? So oh, what no. I want to do, gobies are like hot dog shaped, aren't they? <laughs> so I'm tossing this out there, goby dog. What do you think? Like, you just slap it on a bun. It's got the right shape. The buns are already made. Sell them on the street. Uh, good luck with that. Good luck with that. Okay. <laughs> I've not gotten a lot of takers yet. The thing is, it's I, this is why you know it's a brilliant idea, right? Is that uh, it's, it's brilliant. Yes. Well, the, you know, they tried to really market uh, Asian carps for food. And I've actually eaten it on the grill. And it's fantastic. It tastes really good. 
And if, uh, if they couldn't make that work, I, I don't know about Gobies. They have a lot of lot of real big bones, believe me. A lot of real big bones. You have to fry it, that's all. Um, no, I know it's going to be good. I know it's going to be good. We just have to get there. Uh, great. And then our, our second uh, question is, um, we'd like to end with you know asking for a little bit of life advice from our guests that you may have for our listeners. It could be big or little, serious or silly. Uh, you know, some people have quoted RuPaul, other people have, uh, you know, given the advice that they give to kids, whatever you think is, we just like to leave somebody with a little bit of that. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's always follow your passion. Um, that is my number one advice. Uh, we work too hard in life not to really do what we like. I am really, really blessed to be able to do something that I really like. Um, and the only reason why I'm able to do this, cause I had to bust my tail to get to where I am. Um, but if I was not passionate about it, doing that would have been miserable. So I always say, follow your passion. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. Dr. Brian Roth, uh, associate professor at department of fisheries wildlife at the Michigan state university. Thank you so much. Where can people find you if they want to seek you out website, social media, what works? Yeah, I'm on, actually on Twitter. Um, and so my handle is ichthyprof, which is a mouthful. It's I-C-H-T-H-Y-P-R-O-F. Excellent. That's my handle. And uh, on Facebook, if you want are interested in the predatory diet study, we actually have a Facebook page. It's one word, Huron, Michigan Diet Study. Huron, Michigan Diet Study. Yep. All right. And we will put links to those uh, in the show notes, which you can find by looking down at your phone right now or by going to uh, teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 1313, because this is episode 13. Brian, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. That was really great. We're so lucky to be able to talk to so many smart and hardworking people and just learn a lot. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to uh, subscribe, please do the subscribe. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can look at I-L-I-N-C Grant for Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant. And look down at your show notes for links to more that we're doing on more of the work that we're doing on invasive species and invasive crayfish in particular. And uh, look forward to that special episode coming up later this fall, maybe in the spring, depending on how things go. And until then, everybody take care. Thank you. Tell all your friends about us and keep creating those lakes. Do 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 do